Hello, Tom here. Just a quick one before we start the show this month. Uh, it's a different show to the one we initially had planned. Uh, I was going to speak to Justin McCurry, who's written an excellent book on Kirin in Japan. Uh, we are going to run that interview uh, in a few weeks' time now. The reason is is because um, Lizzie is back. Lizzie Banks is back with us. So the first part of this episode is going to be a quite long but fascinating and very revealing conversation about Lizzie's recovery from the concussion that she suffered at Strada Bianchi all those months ago. And it's a recovery that's still ongoing and it is a fascinating conversation and Lizzie um, is as eloquent as ever. The second part of the episode is, is going to be a chat with Jason Smith, who is the creator of the um, the Driven Project, the Ceramic Speed Driven Project, which looks to completely reinvent the drivetrain. So do stick around for that. Because it's a, that is, again, a fascinating chat, a pure tech chat. But we'll start off with uh, my conversation catching up with Lizzie. Here we are. Here's the episode. You are listening to Service Course by The Cycling Podcast with Lizzie Banks and Tom Wally. Well, I am delighted to be back after a month off and I'm delighted, more than delighted, super delighted to have Lizzie back with us. Back, Lizzie, you've been off for, what, four months um, after a concussion? I am so delighted to be back. Yeah, I've been away for four months, um, recovering and still recovering from concussion and post-concussion syndrome and it is such a nice step to be back on the podcast back with you Tom and a huge thank you to you and Ian Boswell for picking up the pieces for me in my absence when I just <laughs> deserted you and kind of walked off the face of the earth for, for four months well I mean what we I mean you know we have been in touch haven't we but it's obviously it's one of those things it's I mean we'll, we're going to talk about it now really the, the bulk of this podcast is going to be really catching up with Lizzie because you've been through quite a journey but we've we've sort of left you alone a little bit because when you've got a concussion um looking at screens and stuff like that is a is a massive no-no isn't it you know yeah absolutely so in terms of actually talking the talking side of the the podcast was something that I would have been able to do but I wasn't able to look at my phone or look at my computer in order to well firstly even contact Tom to arrange anything but to do any research about anything I, I had such bad screen sensitivity that in the first month or so maybe six weeks I wasn't actually using my phone at all um, my husband was my personal secretary and uh, he would reply to my messages for me and I uh, would just write voice notes and things so it was really uh, a no-go and kind of there was such a um, yeah a, a cognitive processing aspect to it that if I listened to anything complicated I would have to listen to it on 0.8 speed and um, I would only be able to cope with a couple of minutes of, of complicated information, which, you know, Tom is excellent at talking about complicated information. <laughs> um, that, that, yeah, you couldn't actually process it for long enough to, to be able to talk about it. So it's been, it's been quite a roller coaster. Um, and, you know, I've learned so many things and, and I hope to actually do a full podcast on, the tech side of it in the future actually because I didn't realize how much technology there is you know coming into so many different sports about concussion there is actually um, a new technology that's currently being trialed in rugby that is it's an eye tracking device there's two different companies that are making it it's an eye tracking device and and your your visual visual ocular 
tracking um, and the way that your your eye muscles work is supposed to be one of the first things that that is a recognizable thing that changes with concussion and so it's something that you can use and within 10 seconds can tell you whether or not there is concussion there and I think that that is something that could become so important in cycling because we all know firstly how many people land on their head in cycling and I think concussion is massively underdiagnosed in cycling but also the time pressured aspect of a bike race you know we do these UCI concussion protocols and people are loath to you know if you if the cameras aren't on a bike race which was what it was with me yes I hit my head and I thought oh I feel a bit dizzy but by the point that my new bike came along, right, all the new bikes come along, Next, the next thing I've got to do is jump on this bike and go again. And so if somebody doesn't actively see you land on your head, then those things will get missed. And, um, you know, you're not going to then want to stand by the side of the road for, for five minutes or something doing a protocol. But if you can stand by the side of the road for 30 seconds and 10 seconds of that be an eye tracking test, and then you go, okay, right, you're not well enough, you need to come out of the race. That is so much better for the athlete because immediately they are taken out of this environment where they've got these continued stimuli and you're much less likely then hopefully to have this prolonged concussion and uh, post-concussion syndrome, which is which is what I, I have at the moment. Well, let's go back to the to the beginning of the story then. So, I mean, we've, we have heard updates from you. I mean, uh, I mean, we had a bit of a false start. We heard from you on the Cycle Podcast Feminine <laughs> when, you know, you were initially back in training. But there's, I think we've learned over this journey, well, you've learned over this journey that there are, you know, you take a step forward and then you have to take a couple steps back. And, you know, it's, and it's a, you know, you, you sort of make gains, go back a bit and keep making gains. But it's going back to the, to the start. I mean, when it happened, I mean, I, I turned on my TV. Was it? March or February to watch Strada. Yeah, March the seventh or eighth, something like that. Um, and obviously, it was the it was the um, the women's race, so not. I don't think we had full TV coverage, but by the time I turned on, I didn't see didn't see you in in that league group. Um, I wondered what had happened, and tell tell me about what happened in that race because like I say it, it was off camera what happened yeah I mean we only had I think we only had about 20-30 minutes of coverage on that race so you, you really didn't see anything that actually happened that you know formed the race um, and I crashed 30 kilometers in it was about 130 kilometers the race crashed I landed on my head I remember actually thinking when I crashed you know oh whoa like, you know my, my head is spinning I don't know if I'm okay here and you lie there for I don't know. It seems like ages, but it's probably just 20, 30 seconds. And you crash and you think, okay, am I okay? Is my neck okay? Right. Then you you realize you're all right. You get up, say into the radio, Lizzie, crash, glanced at my bike, clear that I needed a new bike. My shifters were going in completely the wrong direction. Lizzie, crash, new bike. Um, then by the time the, the car arrives, obviously they haven't seen what's happened. So they give me the new bike, jump on the new bike. I eventually get back and, you know, I was coming back on, um, <laughs> I was actually accidentally not given my bike. I was actually accidentally given a different rider's bike um, with the brakes the other way around. So I was coming back on the gravel with the brakes the other way around um, on a bike that was slightly too big for me, <laughs> which was quite funny. Um, but it's one of those things like you talk about with race radio, Tom, they're so bad that you can't really hear what's going on. And um, I think they thought I said Lisa, not Lizzie, which is really easy to mistake. In yeah, radio. sure. That'd be Lisa, Lisa Brenner. Yeah, so I got Lisa's bike. So I was going back on Lisa's bike with the brakes on the wrong side, saddle a little bit too high. Got back to the Peloton. Um, and by the time I got back, they'd put my bike back together, checked it, it was fine. So I got back onto my race bike. So, you know, then that's another process of 
coming out this another extra effort to get back eventually I got back and we got through sector five which is the really long gravel sector there's a long climb and that's always you know leading up to that point is part one of the race then that is where things start happening it starts kicking off you know that after that people are going to try for a break and yeah I wanted to get in the break you know if we can help Lisa in the finish it's better if I'm up the road and then I can get over these climbs and I also knew that you know if I was going to make it now after all these efforts I really needed to be in that break to be ahead of the race um it was then a really diff you know really really tough period of the race for about 20 30 k's where there was attacks counter attacks and eventually I got into that race winning break um that Chantal Black was in uh and I stayed in there for quite a while and then we got to some really tough gravel climbs and you know my <laughs> my my body just stopped working and I kept pushing to kind of try and get over the next gravel climb in front of the peloton but I actually got in the penultimate sector I got caught by the race and then yeah I wasn't really able to help so then when the cameras came on I was out the back so by the time I got back to the bus um obviously I'd crashed and then you you kind of just forget about the head side of it and you're cleaning up the visible injuries. So the things on, you know, the road rash on your arm and your, your, your elbow and your hip. And it wasn't really that bad. And it was only kind of as we were leaving that I thought, oh yeah, I landed on my head. And I said, can you just make sure you check my helmet when you get back? Because at this point, my helmet was packed way into the van. It wasn't something that you could just fish out. And that evening I felt fine. Um, I, yeah, you always feel a bit tired after a race, but I didn't notice anything in particular. The next day I was traveling and I thought I felt fine. Um, and it's only with the benefit of hindsight that I now realize I actually had this horrendous travel day where um, I wasn't able to get on my flight because Milan airport was just crazy. Um, so I missed my flight. I remember just breaking down into tears, which is wow. not really normal for me. I also remember um, being on the train station platform later that evening and I, I couldn't read the the boards, you know, for where the train was going and the time. And the were, night... were you alone? Sorry, Lizzie, were you alone at this time? Yeah, I was alone the whole day. Yeah. Right. So and it was a whole day of traveling. Um, it was a I had to fly to London Luton instead of um to manchester like normal i i missed this first flight because of this chaos at milan airport then i had to thankfully there was another flight you know i, I broke down into tears at that point because i thought hey, how am i ever going to get home because there's usually one flight a week and it just so happened there was another one that day um eventually got to luton then had to get you know a bus to luton train station then a train to sheffield or two trains to sheffield um and then got picked up from there and i, I remember thinking yeah i was fine you know but looking back, I couldn't read these display boards. And I remember looking at that light and just thinking, oh my God, why is that light so bright? And just thinking, well, I'm, I'm just I'm tired. You know, I've had a really long day. I've not had much to eat and probably calorie depleted from the day before. And then I got back home the next morning and um, my DS, who actually wasn't at the race, um, but had a career ending concussion, Carmen Small, she phoned me up and she said, hey, Lizzie, I had a look at your helmet and it's smashed into smithereens are you okay and I said oh you know thanks I, yeah I think I'm fine um thanks for checking in but I know what to look for and um my husband's here and I'll be really careful and so we then waited till the afternoon he had some time off work and we went for a ride and as soon as I went riding I just felt weird 
And I think this is the hardest thing with concussion, that the main symptom is feeling weird. You can't really you can't really put your finger on what exactly it is that makes you feel weird, but you feel weird. And so I was riding just, you know, a route that I know really, really well. And I just felt a bit dissociated from everything. And I thought, again, you make excuses. You think, well, I'm just really tired. I had a long day. I didn't eat very much. So I stopped at the petrol station and I bought a can of Coke and some sweets. And I thought, maybe I just need some calories. And I did feel a little bit better. And but I carried on and I just didn't feel right. So as soon as I got home, um, I phoned my DS back and said, can you put me in touch with the doctor? And I also got in touch with the British cycling doctor and took myself off the bike until, you know, I got the response from that. And then we kind of followed the, the standard protocol from there, you know, a couple of days off, get back on the turbo, um, see how it is, and then slowly increase it. And I had a couple of days on the turbo, I think maybe three days, I felt fine. So I went back out on the road and I felt okay. And then the next day I just crashed. And so I would say- When you say, when you say crash, Lizzie, so to describe what's that like when you crash? Yeah, just... sorry. I mean, it's really, yeah, to me, it just feels, you know, I, I know this so well inside out now. Um, so what actually happens is that you get a neurological overload. When you rest and when you do nothing, your brain uh, kind of, again, I've got another great analogy that my director said to me, imagine your brain is a bucket of water and there's loads of holes in the bucket. Normal people don't have holes in the bucket and it's slowly being refilled with water all the time. But my bucket is not really being refilled with water very often and there's loads of holes draining out. And every time I do something, water spills out. And so when I'm resting very slowly, this water comes back up. But as soon as I start doing stuff, water just goes everywhere. And as soon as you get to that point where you are at the bottom of the bucket and there's no water left, then that is a disaster. You well, for me, I was very dizzy. Um, I was dropping things. I was walking into things. I had this strong feeling of feeling weird, <laughs> not feeling right. Um, very, very difficult to explain. Um, but I would also say the other side of it was that probably for looking back now, probably for the first month to six weeks, I didn't realize how unwell I was. I wasn't able to put my finger on these symptoms and understand how bad these symptoms were because my brain wasn't in a place to be able to process how bad I was. And this is why in cycling, it's such a problem. The athlete should never be asked. I mean, of course you should say to the athlete, how do you feel? But if you say to the athlete, do you want to get back on the bike? They're going to say, yeah, of course I do. It was an Olympic year. Of course I want to get back on the bike. I want to train. I want to make all these goals. The world is in Flanders. Um, you know, nationals were supposed to be in June. All of these goals that I've got, and I, I think I feel fine. So let's just ride, you know, riding can't be that bad. Um, but I wasn't in a place to be able to say whether or not I was okay. You know, I remember the first session, first the physio session I had for the neurological side of things, I was asked, what's your dizziness out of 10? And I said, nah, I think it's a one out of 10. And she said, one out of 10. Okay. And I said, yeah, yeah, about a one. <laughs> and my husband said to me afterwards, Lizzie, are you sure it's a one? You know, you're walking around the kitchen, just like bumping into things in your own house where you know exactly where everything is. You know, I'd stopped picking things up because I was just going to drop them on the floor and smash them. I'd smashed my beautiful Stacey Schneider mug a few days into my 
into Lizzie, getting home. <laughs> I smashed I smashed mine too, so don't worry about it. And I wasn't even concussed, so okay. don't worry about it. Okay, so maybe that wasn't a sign that I was concussed. Um, and so, but the point is, you're not perceptive enough to be able to tell whether or not you're okay. Um, so I guess that's kind of, yeah, the rough story of, of how it started. And then how it's going was that... Um, there, there, there is a lot of things that can be done to help concussion patients and there's really an old school of thought and a new school of thought and there isn't that much research about concussion so not really that much is is known factually um but there's a lot of anecdotal evidence and and things you know there is more and more evidence as we progress in the old days you know you used to say go and lie down in a dark room and um wait until you get better Actually, that doesn't help because it's like any kind of training. You have to create um, a training stimulus in order to progress. And so if I want to get better at running, if I just lie down and rest my legs, I'm not going to get any better at running. But if I go out and do a, a 10K run after not having run for 10 years, I'm going to be screwed for a week. So it's exactly the same principle with the neurological side of things but at the beginning I mean I would say kind of six weeks into my recovery my zone five zone six for me was sending one text message on my phone in the morning and one text message in the evening and so it's it's starting from you know you just have to take things right back to the beginning and you have to start from scratch and you have to understand that your um yeah, let's talk about it in cycling terms, your zone five, your zone six is so much lower than you ever thought it was. And you train and you you dip into those zones a little bit. So you, um, at the point that I was okay to watch screens again, which was a long way down the line, you watch TV, but you watch TV for five minutes and you put a timer on and then you stop. And then maybe the next day you don't do any of that at all. Um, so yeah, it's just been this process of kind of, um, yeah, training and recovery and training and recovery, but brain training. And it's, it's a really long process and it's a very slow process. You have no idea how slow the brain is at fixing itself, but it does, it does repair and, oh, it's not really the, yeah, it's the brain systems that are repairing. So yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot more to that side of it as well, to the kind of neurophysio side of it too. Well, there's a few things I'm really interested. In. I'm, I'm interested in some of the some of the methods of, of recovery that you've used. I know you've used meditation and stuff like that. But but first of all, what I want to talk about is um well obviously this is you know um as a cyclist you are under under pressure to perform. You're under pressure to chase contracts. And not only that, this year you had an Olympics looming, so you're under that sort of pressure. How have you managed those things? And and how have how have your team and British Cycling been involved in your recovery? Yeah, I mean, it, it's been really difficult. I mean, now I'm in a really, really good place. And I have to say from the beginning, my team and British Cycling have both been absolutely amazing, really amazing. They've never put pressure on me to to come back before I was ready. And that is so important because it's your, your recovery is so closely linked to stress. Um, but of course, I wanted to get back and I didn't realize how unwell I was. And I didn't. Nobody thinks when you have a concussion that it's going to take months and months to recover. Of course, you hear about these riders that have taken months and sometimes years to recover. But 
I, I thought, oh, yeah, bashed my head. Yeah, it's, it's not great, but whatever. This has happened before. You don't use screens for one to two weeks, worst case. Um, and then you slowly build things up and then you're good to go again. So for me, the first three weeks, I was mostly off the bike. I had these little bits where I kind of went off and then went on the bike and then realized that it wasn't working. So then just kind of went to sleep for a week. And I would say, yeah, that first three weeks, I was mostly kind of just sleeping, um, really not doing very much. I would be sleeping in the day for a few hours, which is not normal for me. Usually I'm somebody who just goes and goes and goes like a Duracell bunny. Um, and then the next three weeks, roughly, I I was getting back to training or I was getting kind of easing into it. Obviously, I'd lost a bit of fitness, but not lost that much. Um, and, you know, I'd have a, had have a have some good days. And then my director would call, call me up and say, hey, Lizzie, like, what do you think about the Ardennes? And I remember that phone call so well. And I was having a great day. Suddenly I could use my phone again. Um, suddenly I could ride again. And I thought, right, that's it. I've done the rest I need. I've got the breakthrough. It's uphill from here. Yeah, my fitness is going to be a bit rough, but it'll build again through the races. So I called her back and I said, yeah, come on. I don't see why I'm not going to be able to do the Ardennes. Like I'm, I'm fixed. I'm fine. The day after, you know, I was using my phone. I went for a really hard bike ride. The day after, I was wiped out. I had a migraine. I couldn't, I couldn't move. I physically couldn't get up. And that process of just being so devastated that, of course, the Olympics were looming, but I also had to phone up and say, yeah, what was I thinking? How, how did I think I was fine when this has happened? And that was really, really tough. And I'd say that next three weeks, you know, I'd started um, a vestibular rehab program, which I'll talk about a little bit in a minute. Um, and I kind of, you know, believed that was going to fix me. And I'd have these these periods where I'd have a few good days and then my brain would just overload and I would just have maybe four really bad days and I wouldn't be riding or maybe I'd ride for an hour if I was lucky. Um, and you have the mood side of that as well. It really affects your mood. And so you feel um yeah anxious worried about it yeah pretty sad of course that you can't you can't reach these goals and that you can't even ride your bike and yeah am I even an athlete if I'm just sitting on the sofa for four days doing nothing and so for the next three weeks there was this really really challenging mentally incredibly challenging cycle where I would have some good days think I'm okay and then just have this awful crash where I couldn't do anything for four days and so eventually, after about six weeks, I went over to British Cycling. And the reason it took so long was, well, firstly, I thought I was getting better. Secondly, before that, I wasn't able to travel over to British Cycling. Um, and it was just over Snake Pass, about an hour and 20 minutes. But I wasn't able to get there in the car and be well enough to do an assessment because the travel would have made me so unwell that it wouldn't have, I wouldn't have been... Um, yeah, I would have been so ill that the assessment wouldn't have meant anything. So eventually I got over there. We did an exercise test. It's called a Buffalo exercise test. It's like a ramp test, but you use your heart rate to determine where symptoms come on. And so then you take 80 to 90% of that heart rate and you train at that. At this point, it was nearly the end of April. And we, you know, I knew at that point that I wasn't going to be able to go to the Olympics you know, I hadn't started recovering. It was obviously going to be a long process. And 
yeah, how even if I started recovering then, I wouldn't be at my physical best in order to be in a place I would want to be in for the Olympics. And British Cycling were amazing about this. And we, at that point, we took it off the table. We said, you know, they said, how do you, how would you feel if the Olympics was out of the window? And at that point, it was, it was like it would just be a massive relief because of course this was my biggest goal you know to represent great britain in the most prestigious competition there is out there in the world that only happens once every four years but i couldn't do it i couldn't physically and um neurologically get to that point and i knew i wasn't able to so i was trying to set my goal this for that for myself that just wasn't possible so at that point we took everything off the table and we started everything again from the beginning my riding went back to one hour at 130 beats per minute my vestibular vestibular rehab program started again from the beginning and the idea was then to get to a point where you firstly are riding without symptoms but you are at a stable point. So you have stable progression and you have a lot of days off because you know that you need the days off so that you don't have this, this neurological crash for a few days. Um, and, and maybe you do two days of one hour and then maybe you might even have to have two days off. It really depends how you feel, but you build up steadily. And so since then I have had, I've still had some bad days, but um, I've had a really steady progression and we've really slowly increased everything. And the number of bad days and the negative symptoms have just decreased and decreased. And I've been able to tune into really what sets me off um, and really manage it well. And so the important thing is actually, you don't want to not trigger symptoms. You want to trigger symptoms, but only to a really small level because if you trigger too many symptoms then your bucket of water is so empty that it takes such a long time to fill it back up again so you want to get your bucket down to you know a quarter full and then let it let it get back up again and that was you know I'm still getting that wrong now it's a really difficult process to 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 manage well um but it's such an important process to understand that your symptoms aren't the enemy and if your symptoms come on you know worst case scenario if I'm on a bike ride my symptoms come on I just stop and I just sit somewhere quiet close my eyes try and meditate let the symptoms settle and then I carry on again and it's about just managing it in in a sustainable way um and it's really really tricky really tricky it's interesting you talk about the the good days and and the bad days, and um, obviously that you know I mean we can be a bit more optimistic about your recovery now. And um, today you told me before we started recording that today is actually for you a bad day. And um, you know if if it was you know a few months ago a bad day, we would not be having this conversation. No, totally. I mean, so now you know when Tom and I record, we've got a screen on and we're looking at you know we're talking to each other. Um, online through the screen so I'm looking at a computer for you know over an hour because we've got probably a couple of hours because we've got so much to catch up on over the last months and so and I'm actually planning on on doing a long ride with some friends this afternoon and I mean yeah even a month ago any ride with friends would have been a no-go in the beginning I couldn't ride with somebody next to me if I could see their legs moving because the process of their legs moving was such a vestibular trigger that it would make me feel sick. So if I was riding with my husband, he would have to ride behind me. 
Um, and so I mostly rode alone. Um, I would often ride in the evening because there were fewer cars and um, the light was less harsh. So all of these things were triggers and anything like that would set me off. Actually, when, when things started improving with my cycling, it was actually really sunny and it was just awful um, because there was a lot of dappled, you know, there was bright sunlight, yeah. there was a lot of dappled shade. And all of those things were so difficult to manage. Lizzie, I've struggled with that myself. And I've, I've come back with a migraine from a ride and, you know, I've not got a head injury. But because of the dappled sunlight, you know, a bit of dehydration, you know, it, it, you know, you come back with, you know, flashing lights on your eyes and stuff like that. It's, yeah, I felt awful. So I can only imagine what it's like when you've, you know, you've actually got a brain injury. Absolutely. And you're focusing, you're focusing on these things that are making you worse. And so I remember the first ride that I did where I was able to just ride and not feel unwell. I was able to focus on riding rather than focusing on how unwell I was. And that was such a huge breakthrough. And so fast forwarding to now, I'm at the point where um, I'm just breaking into, I haven't done a four hour ride yet, but I think we did 340 the other day and it was with six people um, and it was quite hard. Um, and so things are, things are progressing really well, but I can't, just because I've done a three hour 40 ride doesn't mean I can do a week of three hour 40 rides back to back. So it's, it's getting to that stage and then it's the next stage, which is stringing those together. And then the next stage is maybe stringing those together with people. So cycling behind people, because that is such a strong vestibular stimulus. Um, and then um, doing that with efforts as well. So all of these things, it's just a step-by-step -step process and it's, it's really slow. But it's it's getting there. And and for anybody out there who has had a concussion and if you're struggling, you know, I would really strongly suggest to, I mean, I would implore you to find a specialist neurophysio because there are so many exercises that can help you and retrain all these symptoms. And it's not a process of just waiting and you will get better, but it's time and management and and knowing where to go. And that's what's really tricky. Well, I do want to talk about some of the exercise you've been doing. But before that, you've mentioned your husband, Gabriel. Um, and obviously, having someone who knows you so well with you must be so important, you know, just to be able to say, no, you aren't right. I know this because I know you. So I was wondering how people like Gabriel and then perhaps other riders or people who've been through it, the, the people who've been sort of a big help to you through this process of recovery. Yeah, I mean, you know, with my husband, I think there was probably one afternoon in the first two months where he wasn't at home. And so he was always there. And the the mood disturbance side of it, especially in the beginning when it's not going well, is such a difficult aspect to manage um, because part of the syndrome is that you have this, um, I don't want to use the term depression lightly, but this feeling of depression and um, anxiety and hopelessness. Um, and when things get to the point where your bucket is empty and there's nothing in there, you just feel dreadful. And if, if you've got a day where you're progressing well, that's great. But on those bad days, which at the beginning were, or in the first six to eight weeks were more often than the good days, then it is so difficult to see a way out and just having somebody having that support structure there to to kind of remind you that that actually you are progressing and, and and when you're progressing from okay one day you can walk 40 meters down the street without feeling sick and the next day it's 45 meters those progressions are so small that it's not possible to see now it's really easy to see okay last week I was doing three hours now I'm doing three and a half with people those are kind of macro 
um, <laughs> macro improvements yeah. rather than micro improvements. But it's also incredibly difficult for the people around you. And there are aspects of my recovery that I didn't even, or aspects of kind of um, the symptom side of it that I didn't even realize I had. I remember we quite quite far in, maybe two and a half months in, we were staying with family once we could actually stay with family. That was another aspect of it with the lockdown. The isolation must have been so hard. Treatments. Yeah, yeah, sure. yeah. Well, I mean, it was good because I couldn't talk to anybody, anybody. <laughs> anyway, but um, yeah, I, I arrived having ridden to um, Gabriel's parents' house and uh, and his brother said, oh, are you, are you okay if you got a sore throat? And I said, oh no, it just happens when I ride. My voice goes a bit crackly. And Gabriel said, no, it happens when you're struggling. It happens when your symptoms come on and you're finding things really hard. And I had no idea. I'd noticed that my voice had changed a lot, but I'd never kind of directly attributed it to to when I was struggling. So from that moment, you know, he'd obviously noted that and he'd noticed that the, the pattern of it. And so then it was something that I realized was a trigger. As soon as my voice started changing and cracking, I then realized, okay, I've got to stop now and I've got to take myself out of this situation and I've got to step back. But I just thought, oh yeah, my, my voice is going weird. And I, I guess I hadn't really thought about it any more than, than why or particularly when. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a really funny process. But in terms of riders, I mean, I'd say, yes, there's, there's a number of riders in the Peloton that, that have been through really rough concussions and have recovered from it. Um, my particular inspiration in in the first months and especially when I went back to one hour and I was really focusing on trying to not have symptoms but I was still feeling really sick um I thought a lot about Loretta Hansen who rides for Trek Segafredo and she had a really horrible concussion she crashed at the tour of Norway I think um in in 2019 and she was out for a long time um before the coronavirus break she hadn't come back over to Europe because she wasn't fully recovered yet um and um I, th- I think eventually she did after the covid break but we didn't have that much racing um and then this season she came back and she has had the best season of her life and i, I wasn't able to watch those races but i was still kind of tuning into the results and-, and getting the results via other sources and just hearing you know hearing about about those results and where she was now was such a huge inspiration to know that not only can you be a normal a normal average human being be- again after a concussion but you can be a normal human being who's performing at the top of the sport and again seeing you know ian boswell has obviously been a strong voice in terms of um concussion and particularly in cycling and and a really important voice you know trying to get people to understand the importance of it and recognize it and take it seriously because it is you only get one brain um and there is a life after cycling and you need that brain after cycling and seeing um, Ian come back and, and win unbound gravel. And obviously he, he decided to leave professional cycling when he'd had this concussion, but it hasn't limited him in what he's right. able to do. And so that as well has been another huge inspiration. And yeah, you, you, you just have to focus on these positive side, you know, positive aspects of things and po- focus on the positive sides of your recovery and constantly remind yourself, where was I? where was I then and where am I now? And, and the, the positive mental thinking side of it is so important. Well, let's talk about um, that positive sort of mental side of thing. You, you touched on some of the exercises that you've done that have helped you and you've, you've done things, um, you know, through under doctor's supervision and that kind of thing. But um, one thing I was interested that you did was um, 
meditation and is it's been a big part of this recovery as well so t- tell us about how meditation and mindfulness have, have played a part yeah so there are um i've mentioned quite quite a few times vestibular recovery and it's something that i need to touch on because it's not something that before this process you know i say it kind of blase now knowing of course all about it because i've been doing this for the last three and a half months um but it's not something that people um maybe maybe know what it is so i'll talk about that and also about the mindfulness aspect of it so when you've got concussion obviously there is so many things going on in your brain and your brain can't cope with this normal level of activity and you just need to slow yourself down and be kind to your brain um And you're kind of on overdrive all the time. You know, your autonomic nervous system has just gone haywire and it cannot slow down. And this, the fight or flight side of your parasympathetic nervous system is just constantly on and you can't switch it off. And meditation is so important for that in order to calm your body and your brain. And also in order to have positive self-talk. Because telling yourself that you're calm, you're relaxed, you can cope with this, um, your brain is strong and you will get through this is such an important aspect. And I think especially during the first, you know, the, the first parts of concussion where you, you can't do anything. You know, if you say to somebody, just go and do nothing, they'll probably watch TV or read a book or, I don't know, go and chat with a friend or, you know, go out for coffee. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't look at screens. I couldn't read books. All I could do, even lying down, if you were lying down, you'd get um, this feeling where you are just falling. And it was horrible. You know, going to sleep at night was something that I dreaded because you, you have this horrible, horrible sensation that you're just falling and spinning. Imagine the worst hangover you've ever had. But imagine having that for two months solid. That's what it's like. I think I think if anyone's ever had sort of, you know, if anyone's ever had sort of bad labyrinthitis, that's probably, you know, maybe 10 percent of what you experience with that, that sort of sinking. No, it's very, it's very similar to labyrinthitis. Right. Yeah, very, very similar. So anybody who's experienced that is it's very, very similar. But but not everybody experiences the same thing. So there's a number of aspects to concussion. There's um, I've mentioned before that the mood side, um, there's the vestibular ocular side, which really can be split into the vestibular side. So the vestibular is how your vestibular canals and your brain, the things that manage your balance, how sorry, the vestibular canals in your ears, sorry, my brain's gone haywire, how they interact with your brain in order to manage your balance. Um, So there's that side of it. And that system really kind of gets very messed up. And then there's the oculomotor system. So this goes back to the eye tracking that we were talking about with that's being brought into in rugby to identify concussions early. And the vestibular ocular side is a huge aspect of... um, concussion in terms of dysfunction and in terms of um, the importance of of correct rehabilitation. Anybody with a concussion should have a vestibulo-ocular physiotherapy referral. And actually, very interestingly, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a pediatrician, and she said any teenagers now that come in with a head injury automatically get um, a physio referral because they'd noticed uh, how strong correlation there was between teenagers having a head injury um, and then having difficulty with concentration and things like that 
pretty soon down the line. So what I find really interesting is that um, in teenagers, this is getting recognized and treated really quickly, but in adults, it's, it, it's a process that isn't known about. Um, I know about it now because I've been through it and I'm so fortunate to have had some of the best treatment in the UK and people who obviously at the top of cycling who really know about concussion and have dealt with post-concussion syndrome time and time again. But I've been blown away. Actually, I had a couple of messages through people on my Instagram who got in touch and said, hey, I, I'm one was two months, one was nine months down the line with concussion and neither of them had really had physio treatment and they were struggling with things that you know should have been managed months ago so I implore you or you know if anybody out there is struggling with concussion or you know anybody please ask them to get in touch with a specialist um, neurophysio because there are so many people out there that can help you and um, again when I was talking to Loretta Hansen from Trek Segafredo about this for the first two months she didn't have any physio input she just thought you know why aren't I getting better she'd think oh maybe it's because I've got a cold maybe it's because of this and then eventually she got this treatment and she made such huge improvements and I'm so lucky because actually from two three weeks in I've been doing this and and maybe we didn't have that quite that right balance at the beginning when I thought I was getting better enough to start training and so actually my exercises were a little bit harder than they needed to be um, and then once we scrapped everything and started again from the beginning, I got that balance right. But it's such an important aspect. You train um, the tracking of your eyes. You train the movement of your eyes. My eyes couldn't move smoothly from one from one, uh, you know, from the leftmost aspect to the right. They would just kind of jar, go uh, 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 rather than moving smoothly across the page, which then um, gave me visual problems. And it was only when I started to see things clearly again that I realized how blurry things had been before. So yeah, there's just so many, so many aspects to it. And also the, the cognitive aspect, the cognitive overload aspect. You don't, I think you don't realize when you're normal how um, difficult conversations are. And, and maybe it's something that we've all been experiencing, actually, you know, with with reintegrating into society after these lockdowns. Suddenly we're having conversations again and we're like, oh, gosh, that's exhausting. Um, and for somebody who's recovering from concussion at the beginning, if somebody I hadn't met came to the door and I was talking to them for two minutes, I would start to feel dizzy. And it was just a process of maybe talking to someone for two minutes and feeling a bit dizzy and then going to have a lie down. And then next time it would be a bit easier. Maybe I'd be able to talk for five minutes. And then it got to the point where there would be four people and there were two conversations going on. And at the beginning, I could not cope with that at all. If there was someone else talking, I just had to say, I'm sorry, I, I can't speak because your brain couldn't it couldn't kind of zone out of one conversation it was so on all the time and this is again what I was talking about with meditation that it wasn't able to switch off to the point where you could go that's background conversation I'm going to focus on this and so um, with my vestibular rehab I would then start doing a lot of exercises with the radio on in the background so I was focusing on what I was doing but the radio was this background noise that I had to try and block out and in the beginning it was so hard and I felt so sick but now I can go to a restaurant um, and it's just such massive progress to be able to kind of go from that point where you can't have a single conversation with one person for two minutes to actually you can be um, in a restaurant with background music and maybe I can't be there for that long and it depends if I'm having a good day or a bad day but that's actually part of my rehab now to put myself into those situations which are, are really really busy and noisy and there's a lot going on and there's a lot to look at and so go there for a bit 
maybe wait for your symptoms to come up and then take yourself out of that situation and know that it's fine to take yourself out of that situation. Try not to have any anxiety about that. It's just part of the process and next time it'll get better and it'll get easier. Well, we've touched on all this sort of um, how things are getting better, really, the progress you're making. I'm not going to ask you to put any sort of time frame on these goals, but you are going to come back. You are going to ride in the in the pro peloton again. Oh, um, yeah. You know, this is, I mean, I just want to reassure people this is going to happen. Um, what are you sort of looking ahead to? Yeah, I mean, yeah, very much. I'm coming back. I'm, I'm, I'm nearly there. You know, at the moment, I'm at the point where I can really see the light at the end of the tunnel. And the tunnel's a bit too long. Um, I would like it to be a bit shorter, but I can see that light. And I, I know that it's just a process that I have to go through. Um, it's, it's, just a, it's just a case of, yeah, continuing to, to retrain all of those systems that still quite, aren't quite up to scratch and, and everything's getting better so much faster. In the beginning, it was really important to not set goals, to not have that pressure because I was so unwell. And like I say, I didn't realize how unwell I was and how far I, I had to go. But Actually, I think back at the beginning of May, I kind of set myself a personal goal that I wanted to be racing again in September and October. And actually, luckily for me, the season is longer again this year. And we've got some really nice races in October um, due to kind of COVID cancellations and reorganizations. And there's Roubaix and the Women's Tour and the British Nationals has been moved to October, which is another really, really nice goal. And so when I set myself this goal of racing in September and October and the beginning of May, it seemed so far away that it was so possible and so easy. And now, you know, I'm I'm nearly into July and I'm in a completely different place and I'm so much closer to racing. But I don't know whether that, you know, being back, I kind of thought all oh, September and October and maybe Pluway, which is actually at the end of August, because I would love to be there. Um, and maybe it doesn't quite seem as achievable. Um, but it's I've kind of got that goal in mind, but it's not it's not a pressured goal. Yeah. My team, Serratus at WNT, they, they are just so wonderful. You know, it's just a case of come back when you're ready. And it's so important as well, because if I came back early, not only would I be a danger to myself, but I'd be a danger to other riders in the peloton. You know, if you're not if your vestibular system is not up to scratch, the risk of crashing uh, injuring yourself, re-injury of your own brain is so high. And also there are 150 or however many other riders in the peloton who I don't want to injure them if I'm not ready to come back. So it's really, you know, it's really important to be 100% and 100% for a while. You know, you need to kind of know that you're 100% and then test it out a little bit before you come back because you can think you're okay and then you can do a few hard days and then have this little crash. So um metaphorical crash not a physical crash I hope but yeah so that that's kind of what I've got in mind um I don't know if it'll happen and I feel quite relaxed about that um I know that it is a process and I have to go through and of course there is a deadline with the end of the season being October and I would love to race before then I'm desperate to get back to racing but I have to be well enough and I I'm quite at peace with that. I think at the beginning it was so difficult to kind of miss all these races and miss all these goals. And now I'm really at peace with the fact that I just have to be well enough and this brain has to last me forever. And if I want to race for the next, yeah, five, seven years, goodness knows how long, then I've got to have a brain that's working and that's working at 100%, not at, at you know, 75 
Well, Lizzie, I'm you know I'm thrilled that you are getting better. I'm thrilled that you're back here talking to me, and I'm absolutely thrilled that you know on the horizon it looks like you're gonna get back to racing. So I'm just and and thank you for talking so. I mean, don't, don't be worried about this, Lizzie. I know you you said such a lot of stuff, but don't not like you've talked so eloquently about. The, your recovery and so honestly that I think people need to hear this stuff you know people do need to take this much more seriously I was saying to you that um, I watched uh, during lockdown I watched a series on Netflix called Last Chance You and if anyone's seen it you'll know it's about um, um, uh, junior college American footballers in the States and they are routinely, routinely suffering two or three concussions in a short season of you know maybe 10 12 games or something like that and under pressure to come back so quickly and we it's something that we need to change no matter what sport it's in yeah absolutely I mean I'm actually grateful that I'm a bit older now and I'm not kind of I have got a bit more perspective on life and I'm not kind of thinking yeah I I have to get back to bike racing and I trust me I am so desperate to get back to bike racing and now that I've been able to do some longer rides I just realized like how much I love doing this I just love bike I love riding my bike I love bike racing I really love bike racing it's so exciting it's so fun and it's so cool but I can't do that with a brain that's not 100% and you have to know that once I finish bike racing yeah even if I finish bike racing at 38 I've still got another 40 years of my life that I've got to live and you you can't not take your brain seriously it's so difficult because it's difficult for for the person going through the injury and for other people outside to understand because even if you break a leg you know you can see what's going on there you can see on an x-ray there's a broken bone you can put it into a cast and you take time and you do the rehab and you get better the problem with a brain injury especially with something like concussion where you don't necessarily crack your skull you can't see what's going on there but if you break your leg and you don't reset that bone and you don't put it in the cast and you don't give it the time how can you ever expect to run or cycle again and that is the same thing with concussion if we smash our brains and we break those axons but we don't put them in that cast and give them that time and do that rehab we can't expect our brain to function at the level we need it to again and especially you know in the peloton in cycling there is so much going on <laughs> and with a damaged brain I've realized quite now how much there is going on and the focus that you need in a race you know sometimes you finish a race and it wasn't really that physically exhausting but mentally you are shattered because it's been four hours of full focus so yeah it's just so important to to recognize what's going on here create awareness of it and um yeah, I, I really hope that if there's anyone out there who, who is going through this or you know someone, you know, just to know that to, to get help and it is out there and um, that there is support out there. So, yeah, I hope that I guess I, I, it's been a, a real process of education for me. And I guess I hope that I wouldn't have to do it firsthand. But actually, I also hope that I can help others through this process. And and already I've, I've met people who who kind of haven't had the right treatment and I hope that from my experiences I can guide them in order to 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 help them them through this because it's a really really tough process but thankfully for me it's getting towards the end even though it's a little bit away away and yeah I'm pretty grateful for that and for the for the support I've received from from British Cycling and and my team and and specialists as well. 
Well, Lizzie, listen, enjoy your three to four hour bike ride today. The the, uh, the rain on this side of the peaks has stopped, so uh, it should be a decent day out there. So enjoy it. And look, it is, it is so good to have you back. I genuinely mean that. So uh, and best of luck for and also, you know, Paris in three years time, chunk of metal, you know, chunk of metal around your neck. Hopefully. Exactly. Fingers you know, crossed. That, that was part of it as well. You know, obviously I was gutted about initially gutted about missing, gutted and relieved about missing the Olympics this year. But I'm looking forward and I've got such bigger goals. You know, I would be going to the Olympics. Um, we'd have a team of two and it was going to be really tough to get a medal. And now I'm looking forward to Paris and I see no reason there why I'm not going to be in the shape to really be contesting for medals myself. And so it's about looking forward and, and trying to look at the bigger picture. And sometimes that hard, that's really hard, but it's, uh, it's, it's really important. And I think that goes for, for everything in life and not just recovery from injuries and concussion. Chute, chute à l'arrière du peloton, cycling podcast, team car, the back of the pack, please. Today, many small business owners are busier than ever because they are focused on managing and growing their business. They can't always spend the time they wish they could on recruiting. That's why LinkedIn Jobs has made it easier to find and hire the best candidates for free. I can actually speak from the other side because I use LinkedIn a lot. I'm a freelance audio, radio, podcast producer by trade. And... Um, you know, you have to go searching for those jobs or let people find you. And that's why I use LinkedIn. And in fact, I made a new connection through LinkedIn the other day. I'm speaking to someone about a brand new podcast uh, awards thing that's being set up. So I use LinkedIn pretty much on a daily basis. And if you are someone who needs a podcast producer, then uh, just search out Tom Wally on there and you'll find me. So if you do want to find an ideal candidate for your role, get started by posting your job for free to reach LinkedIn's network of over 30 million professionals in the UK. Fill out targeted screening questions to get your role in front of the most qualified candidates with the experience, skills and motivation you need. Then use simple tools to filter and prioritise the top candidates you'd like to interview. LinkedIn Jobs will help you hire the right person for your role. And your first job post is free. Just visit linkedin.com slash cycle. Again, that's linkedin.com slash cycle to post a job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Remember, if you're looking for a podcast producer, Tom Wally. Thanks to LinkedIn for their sponsorship of this episode. And thanks to Lizzie Banks again for that very revealing interview. It's fantastic to hear from Lizzie. The next part of the show, this is a pure tech part of the show, and it's a chat I had with Jason Smith. Now, Jason is the creator of Driven, or Ceramic Speed Driven, as you may have heard of it. It is a project that aims to completely reinvent the drivetrain. If you've seen it at a bike show or online, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about because it is very, very eye-catching. And Jason does a great job of describing exactly how it looks and exactly what it is. But I started off asking him about his history with cycling. Oh, it's, um, well, yeah, I, I, I used to be, a used to, a um, little older and have a family and kids right now. So I was a competitive triathlete um let's see 07 to about 2010 and i specialized in the xterra off-road series here in the states and did a little bit of road try never not even near professional level but pretty accomplished amateur so um i was i was in the sport um and then i had uh, um, a normal job outside of the cycling industry and um then how i got into let's call it the, the cycling business was when I was a racer, um, I was a, a typical racer buying components and buying parts to, to get faster. 
And I saw that um, there was a lot of marketing hype, a lot of marketing BS out there. And it was frustrating. And I had this idea that, boy, it'd be really great if, if a company could test these products and um, just disclose, hey, this one is the fastest. Um, this one actually does what it's claimed and, and these don't. And then I kind of dismissed the idea and, and went back to work and, and racing. But this idea stayed with me for a couple of years. And I had an opportunity. I was I was switching jobs and had an opportunity to to try out my idea. And I I said, you know, idea, I get a lot of crazy ideas in my mind, as we all do. And usually they're really hot for a day and then they, you know, get dismissed. Uh, this one stuck around and I thought this would be neat to do and it could be a self-sustaining business, you know, single person, uh, one man show business. And the goal was um, like consumer reports. Um, they, they buy all of the product. They don't accept product from manufacturers and they test it and they, their business model relies on consumers to pay their bills. Um, so that was the philosophy that was, was, Kind of in the business plan is I would buy this equipment or you know pay the money to develop it and uh, it would come out of my pocket and also buy all of the bottom brackets, the pulley wheels, the chains, the lubes, everything that I was planning on testing, and then sell the reports. And the first reports in 2012 were seven dollars and ninety five cents each, <laughs> and then and then I think they went up. Then we there was a um, a suite of like 10 reports, you know, the next year later where we started doing a lot of different testing and it was $14 and 95 cents. But for that $15, cyclists could get all these reports on chains, lubes, bearings, wheel bearings, bottom brackets, pulley wheels. So essentially all the moving parts uh, of the bicycle, they could find out, you know, look at the, um, the data and uh, really make their own decision on what they wanted to buy and put kind of a, a dollar amount on on a product's value if it was super expensive but it it really did well and with friction reduction okay it'd be worth it or if something would be expensive but the the claims were ridiculous hey let's not buy that um, you know component or whatever so that was that was how it got into it and um that was Friction Facts, as many of your listeners will recognize that name. So that was uh, yeah, 2011, 2012, and did that solely just with consumers for about two years. And then I started testing for manufacturers, but there was a Chinese wall between the two um, businesses. I didn't let it overlap, meaning there was the public facing where all the reports and the products um, those were what I bought. And then over here, I did testing confidentially um, and not so much confidentially friction back facts, but for the manufacturer so that their data wasn't released um, because I had all the, the the test equipment. So I did that for uh, a lot of the, the big companies that I can't disclose um, because we were we were the only company with drivetrain friction test equipment. Um, then, is, where is all this stuff? Is this all this stuff just in your garage at home? Then you just—it was Tom. It was. It was in my basement and in my garage. <laughs> yeah, which, and are you? Are, are, one of the things I didn't get from you: are, Were you when you did all this? I mean, were you an engineer? Did you have that engineering yeah. background, or you just thought, you know, I'm going to yep. just dive into this? 
Yep. So, so I'm an engineer by training. I have a, a bachelor's degree. It's a mechanical engineering, strength of materials. So, but the thing that's quite interesting is my career. I never really was an engineer. I did technical sales and traveled around, um, but I was always a racer also. So that's where I realized, hey, I can use my technical background with my love of racing and wanting to go faster and put that together and create this equipment and this business. Um, yeah, yeah. So this was all this was all in the garage, which which I'll, I'll get to how I get ceramic speed is. Then then I invented the the optimized chain. You know, the fact the UFO chain was the first chain out there that was um, factory called factory optimized. And now we have probably eight or ten different manufacturers that are that are doing these optimized chains. But um, boy, this would have been back in probably 2014. We came out with that process, and um, what happened was I was manufacturing chains, testing in my house and in my garage, and uh, started. Uh, wife and I started family, and it just wasn't working out. So I had to make the decision: go and become a manufacturer or keep testing. And I'd been working with Ceramic Speed up to that point as one of the manufacturers that I was doing testing for. And I presented it to them because it seemed like it would fit their, their kind of uh, you know, core product group to have the bearings, all the go fast products. So in 2015, the technology for the UFO chains was sold to Ceramic Speed. So they, they took the UFO chain and the UFO product line to where it is today. Um, and then Continued that for a year, and I decided I had all these ideas, but I couldn't become a product development engineer because Friction Facts was independent and unbiased, and it just wasn't fit in the business model yet. I had all this equipment and everything that was necessary to do that. Um, so I approached Ceramic Speed again. I had my list of companies that I was going to approach. You know, you know them all. <laughs> hey, do you want to uh, to purchase a drivetrain friction lab and and bring Jason on along with that lab and all the ideas that are in my head. Um, and it worked out with ceramic speed that um, we did. The, it's not necessarily a merger. They're a lot bigger than friction facts. So ceramic speed acquired friction facts, brought me on board and, um, and the rest is kind of history. So now ceramic speed had the world's only, you know, complete drivetrain efficiency test lab uh, they had UFO, and that product was going gangbusters at that point. And then I came on in Boulder um, with some new ideas and to help them out in their R&D with, with product development. So that's kind of, sorry for being long-winded, but that's the history. And it happened um, pretty quickly. And Tom, like I always try to be a little inspirational to the listeners. I wasn't in the cycling industry. I was doing other stuff. And and I was fortunate. I, I had some money to to take a risk on some equipment, but um, I came from nowhere into the industry, and it worked out okay. Um, it worked out really well because I had this dream and this passion and, and this business and and wanting to to do better and build better and faster. And um, you know, in, in the end, it all worked out. So I I hear a lot of people ask me, how do I get into the industry? Well, you got to have an idea and. and passion and follow through with it too you know so 
I'm mean, honestly, you're preaching to the converted there, really. You know, I sort of, um, you know, I, I pinch myself. You know, I've, I've only been in cycling as an industry really for the last five years. You know, I got involved in it through this podcast, and then suddenly, you know, it's a small world, isn't it? You then yeah. you end up talking to people like yourself. Um, I've been fascinated recently by the chain. I, mean, I don't know if you know a guy called Dan Bigham over here. Um, he's an accomplished track cyclist. Okay, yep. Just basically a very smart guy, and he works with a lot of pro teams. But he's always reinventing things. So one of the things he told me a while back is that over dinner one night, he'd completely reinvented the chain. Now, I've not seen that reinvention, but I also spoke to a, um, some guys who run something called New Motion Labs. Mm-hmm. And they've, you know, you can go and check yep. their, mm-hmm. their their chain yep. design out there. Um, it just seems that there's, you know, the chain, it's just sat there for 100 years. Yep. Right. But now suddenly people like yourselves have been drawn to it and have seen the fact that this has sort of been left. And, mm-hmm. and it's ready to be it's ready to be reinvented right mm-hmm. um it is so see we're on video and, and, and your listeners can't see that but my eye i'm looking up right now and seeing what i can talk about so um all right so we there's the chains and the chain drivetrain and now we've got driven which is completely removed from the chain so ceramic speed we go down two paths here um we're taking driven as where where I feel and a lot of investors feel that's the future of the drivetrain, but it, it's still going to be a little while. Now let's look at the chain. Tom, you're exactly right. The chain itself has really pretty much the basic core design of it has remained unchained, un- unchanged, ah, <laughs> unchanged since uh, the late 1800s with the roller. Um, the biggest advancement was in the 80s when the split bushing design arrived. Um, and, um, and I'm not sure if, and SETI Socks, um, not sure if I'm pronouncing that company right, but they did that in, late eight, in mid eighties and they had the patent on that for 20 years. And what that did was that allowed by doing the split bushing, that allowed the chain to, to have more lateral skew, lateral flex, so that you can get your you know, chain crossing ability for, a wider range cassette. So that really, really opened up um, the, let's see here, the, the gear range and the number of cogs on that rear cassette was with the split bushing chain. Another thing that happened is that split bushing chain, the bushing itself is pressed into the outer plates. So you removed a part, um, which is really, and also it allows for the lubrication to get down inside of the chain better because now instead of this closed kind of bushing system, you have a split between the bushing. So um, the lubrication get down and anyway, it was, it was, it was really, really neat. And then, so, but since then the, the advancements we've seen in the chain are, I call them more evolutionary. Um, you've got your hollow pin, you've got your, your chamfers and your shaping of the outer plates, um, things like that. But there's been nothing really revolutionary. Now, I think what's, I feel it's, been going on the last two or three years like for instance new motion labs and and um and actually i something just crossed my mind with with dan i believe they filed a patent i check patents regularly i believe that i haven't seen it's not released but they they filed some type of patent um on a new um chain design and um and um i'll go ahead and disclose this um hey I get fired, I'm going over to Driven anyway, right? <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, boss. No, no. Who will be my boss over at Driven? But anyway, um, I'll just spill the beans a little bit here, but um, we're we're working on a new chain ourselves. 
So um, it's, I, boy, I wish I could tell you more about it, but it is, it is completely different. Um, it's not even, I've seen the new motion labs. I, I see what they're doing. Not, I, I don't necessarily agree with their technology, but um, their claims, but we'll, we'll see how it goes. And we can't test one of their chains because they're, they're not available yet. And, and that's something we like to do always is not, not as competitors, but more of, of technologists is anytime there's a new product, a new lube, we try to get our hands on it and test it. Um, and if it is faster or better, we want to know why, and that'll drive us. Um, and then if it, if it isn't faster or slower, we're aware, okay, that's, that's another claim that just isn't panning out. So I think we'll also in the next probably two years, see some radical chain designs come out and, um, It'll be something fun and exciting because as the cycling public, they'll have to, we'll, we'll test everything, of course, but um, see what kind of goes where. Now, going over to Driven, my responsibility now is to obsolete the chain. And I hope that happens, but it's going to take a little while. Even if we have this, you know, the Driven products out, say in two years, chains are here for a while. Um, it's not going to happen overnight. So what I envision is, is the plan is for driven to, to be on bikes and then slowly overtake the chain drivetrain. But let's say for the next 10 years, the chain drivetrain is still going to be there. And some of these radical revolutionary chain designs um, will, will be in the market for some time and hopefully you know, bettering the, the chain drivetrain. I'm going to come out and say it. I think the um, the chain is the most exciting area of bike design at the moment. I'm nah. going to say it. I'm going to come out and say it. Um, I was I was going to ask you a question, right? But then I watched loads of your videos today when I went down the rabbit hole, and mm-hmm. you answered it for me. I was going to ask you why haven't sort of the big drivetrain companies? Well, it's really there's two of them, isn't there? Really, mm-hmm. why haven't yep. they reinvented the drivetrain? But then in one of your videos, you showed me you know their factories, their manufacturing plants, and all that sort of stuff. Of course, they're not going to change because mm-hmm. they will just force all that stuff into obsolescence mm-hmm. yep um so we call their bread and butter um when you have when there's a do obviously with the monopoly it happens but um we have what's it's a duopoly going on right now and when there's only two manufacturers they only have to keep up with each other so they're they're keeping around each other they're also very large they have a lot of money put into um the manufacturing as you just mentioned and um and to be quite honest, traditional chain drivetrains, they work fine for right now. Um, there's not been a really disruptive company to ruffle feathers, to come in and say, hey, it, this has been like this for 100 years. Something needs to be changed. And I don't know if it's going to be driven. I hope it is. But the fact that that we we have investors now and backing and um, you know a lot of a lot of positive comments going into this, like you guys can do it, you need to do it. Um, you know, we we might be the the, the little poke that um, you know opens up some eyes. And this is funny to say, but we don't want to poke too hard, right? Because <laughs> those those guys are big, and uh, and you know patents and technology are important. So that's we realize that um, if we come out with something great, we're going to have to have the technology protected, right? Because these, the duopoly uh, guys are, are, 
are pretty big. Um, but you have to look at, you love the chain and the drivetrains there. And I, I, I read this quote the other day, uh, Henry Ford, who did Ford Motor Company in the um, United States, he said back in probably 1915, if I had asked people what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. <laughs> so we're looking at that as, yeah, today's drivetrains work fine. Oh, yeah, they have all these problems, but they're great. Well, really? Let's see what great could be. And then maybe there'll be some quotes about driven 50 years from now. (laughs) The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport. Fueled by science. Thanks as ever to Science in Sport who have been with Cycling Podcast for a long time. And they're just about to embark on another Tour de France with us. How many is that? They've been with us for ages. Thank you, Science in Sport. And actually, I need to re-up my Science in Sport goodies because um, over the last 15 months, 18 months maybe, I've been doing all my riding pretty much on the turbo. I don't commute anymore because of, you know, the thing. And um, kids have just meant that I just don't have the time that I used to, to to train. But I got my bike back from the shop the other day and it was looking nice. The weather was good. And I've done a couple of road rides recently, but I realised that, um, you know, doing an hour and a half on the turbo, you can get through it with maybe, you know, a gel here or there if you need one. Uh, On the road, blimey, after two and a half hours, I felt empty. My body just wasn't used to it. So I need to re-up with Science in Sport. And if you do too, then you can get 25% off. If you go to scienceinsport.com and enter the offer code, SISCP25. That's SISCP25. Well, I'll tell you why Driven. I mean, I'm going to get you to describe Driven because you'll do a much better job of it than, than I will. But um, And I'm, I'm sure most of our audience, almost all of them, will have seen it because it made a big splash 2018 when it was sort of first yeah. unveiled. But one of the reasons it resonates with me, I don't know if you have these over in the States, but we have these things called bike jumbles. Mm. You know, just a load of old guys... It's basically just, you know, car boot sale, just selling old bike parts um, for sort of vintage collectors. But I remember following a bike through Manchester here in the UK and it didn't have a chain on. It had Mm -hmm. something. This was an ancient thing Mm -hmm. I'd never seen before, but it had something that looked like, you know, it had drive. It had some kind of, I don't know what you'd call it. um, Just, just some, just some tubing that was spinning. So, so, so so is that the, is that the inspiration for driven? You know, there is a, there is a precedent there. So it was not there. There are shaft drives out there with shaft drives drives with roller type engagement. So the inspiration was organic here between me and the University of Colorado um, team, the mechanical engineering team that worked on this. So we came up with the design. It was only in hindsight when we were doing patent searches that we found um, more than 100 years ago. I'll give you an example. Uh, there's there's a bike called the Spin Roller, and it might have been one of the ones that you saw riding, and it had a drive shaft, and it, it had some spinners on it. And and there's also in some of the comment sections out there for Driven, there, there's some some skeptics say, "Hey, this was this was invented 100 years ago." Well, the Spin Roller was, but what's different is, especially with Driven, is the technology between the bearing interface and the teeth. So, and shaft drives have been around forever with bevel gears. You can buy them now. I mean, yeah, they've been around for a hundred years. So we're not we're not claiming to have invented shaft drive bike or the rollers or 
elbow gears. What we're doing differently is we're getting that 99% efficiency by use of the ceramic bearings and interface between those bearings and the teeth. Um, and also, just a bit, if the patent, uh, the actual patent uh, just got released two month, uh, three months ago in January for Driven, so it's, it's available publicly. But if someone were to read the claims, it's essentially the bearing interface and the multi-speed um, gear, gearing, because a lot of these 100-year-old bikes weren't able to do multi-speed. So we were able to, to get the efficiency with the shifting and the multi-speed, wrap that up into a patent. And that's that's where Driven differentiates itself, is with the efficiency and the multi-speed. I meant to ask you, because you, you talk about the, the 99% efficiency. What is the efficiency of, say, a, just a regular, you know, off-the-shelf yep. chain? Yep. So um, it can it can be anywhere. Okay. So um, we can get, say, poor efficiency drivetrains, um, high 80%, say 90%. And if you take a drivetrain on the other end of the spectrum on a on a rear derailleur style drivetrain, if it's if everything we knew we know how to make that drivetrain as fast as possible, we can get up to the high 97s, 98%. That's with the optimized chain, everything optimized. You know, that's that's for race day for you know one hour race. Let's give it all we we've got. You know, kind of like putting everything into the dragster, the Formula One car for that day. So um, then, is that practical to do every day? Um, so a point I'm making is a chain drivetrain can get pretty close. Um, you know, it's it's relatively high efficiency um, to where get to where driven is. One of the things that differentiates Driven, Tom, is that we aim to do that every day. Now, this is the end product will be an enclosed system. So we're going to get this efficiency and longevity that out of an everyday product that doesn't have to be optimized and um, you know it doesn't like require relubing and require pulling the chain off and, and waxing it or, you know, using special coatings and things like that. Um, and I have to be careful because that's where, that's where ceramic speed, uh, you know, <laughs> that's where their strengths are. Uh, so this is a little bit of a, con- I wouldn't say conflict of an interest, but we're, we're going places that um, you know, obviously could, could obsolete the chain drive. Um, so, so that's where not just efficiency, but driven is going to come in that it has a lot, a lot more, a lot different advantages than than just efficiency. And I, this crosses my mind all the time. I'm going to change lanes here. Is is the bicycle drive is an exposed transmission? Come on now, what vehicles or anything has an exposed transmission? The so the only th- so the motorcycle and some of them are shaft drive in terms of the motorcycle has an exposed chain but it's just the final drive the transmission is fully enclosed bike transmission and drive is completely exposed to the elements that so now i'm becoming somebody that's not running driven but just the the outsider the bystander and saying looking at the drivetrain can't something be done it's better come on now it's 2021 and it's an exposed transmission that's that's where it goes back to the philosophy of of something something can be done better 
and we think we're on the right path. We hope we are. Um, and and it might be driven that completely seals the drivetrain and, and maintains efficiency. And it doesn't have to be lubricated and cleaned after uh, you know every ride or a couple of rides. Really bringing the bicycle drivetrain <laughs> to where every other vehicle on earth is right you know, today and closed and maintenance free. So. Well, you- you can't see it, but just sort of over in front of me, there's a shed that's got my winter bike in, and my winter bike is just crying out for something like that. It's just saying, please, please cover my transmission. Um, one of the interesting things about um, about drivetrain is obviously there's um, there's the push now for more one bike that will do everything, and mm-hmm. and within that, what you probably really want, what you're really looking for, is um, the perfect spread of gears, the huge, that huge range without losing any efficiency. Um, what, what sort of range can you achieve with, 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 with driven? Mm-hmm. So we can achieve a greater range than with a traditional, um, drivetrain. One, one of the nice things about the design of driven is it, it's completely different than a bicycle drive when you look at the rear cog. So, I mean, a, a chain drive. So a, a rear derailleur chain drive right now, the cogs are arranged vertically, they're stacked. So there's a limitation on the number of cogs that can be placed in there. Um, you know, how narrow can you make that chain and how, how far can you butt into the non-drive side of that hub before you, know, you, you start losing the, the hub functionality? Um, and, and we feel that, that that's detriment to the, the chain drive because of that. When you look at the way driven works, we have a flat cog and we're not limited radially by the number of gears that we can put on it. So, um, yeah, so, I mean, I don't think it would ever happen, but you could have a rear cog that's the size of a dinner plate to get that that range. And another thing is we can, I don't know if we'd go down this path, but we what we do in the back, we could also do in the front, um, shifting gears. So we could have a two by if if we wanted to. Um, with, with electronic shifting and the advancements in, in controllers, we could do something that the cyclist doesn't need to think about front and rear rings and what position the, the pinion is in the rear. You go up and the, the controller automatically decides whether it needs to be in the front or rear, I'm sorry, the bigger small ring or, um, you know, and what what ring it would need to be in in the back or cassette or cog. So I think in my opinion, the one by has really taken off because a cyclist doesn't have to think about which small or big ring they're in the front. So moving forward, we might only have a one by ourselves. We're not sure yet, but we can, we do have the technology to put two rings up front but we would only want to do that if it was simple for the rider. So they go up, down, and then the controller takes care of the rest. So yeah. it's it's really exciting. I think one of the things that one of the the big benefits that uh, I would see in it, I am um, when I ride, um, I'm left leg dominant, right? So I unclip mm-hmm. on on my left side, which means mm-hmm. I get when I'm getting off the bike. I always get that fourth cat. We call it a fourth cat tattoo. You know, the chain across the across the calf. I get it all the time. And like you know, just having this eliminate that 
I mean, that's yep. the, that's that's my main feature, quite frankly. <laughs> but it is it is it is um it is an extraordinarily beautiful thing. And I don't know if you were surprised, but obviously, I mean, one of the reasons why it's back in my mind is um you made it available to investors. And was it mm-hmm. what two or three days you met your target yeah. straight away? Yeah, yeah, two days. It was amazing. None of us seed invest. That's the platform that hosted this. Um, they weren't expecting that. We weren't expecting that. We were planning on this to be a three to four week raise. And it went live on a Monday morning. And by Tuesday afternoon, investors were being waitlisted. And we had to scramble because um, with the SEC, which is Securities and Exchange Committee, it's the government regulation group, there's certain time frames that need to be hit for a crowdfunding campaign. And we, we hit these so fast uh, that we were scrambling behind the scenes to start to open things up to the public because it was in, an invite only at first, but anyway, um, not important. So yes, um, it was amazing how quickly um, the investors jumped on this opportunity. And that's that made us feel good because uh, you know we're, we believe in what we do and, and we see the comments and there's skeptics, there's positive, there's skeptics, rightfully so. So when we said, hey, we'd like to open this up to external investors and the opportunity, and and I don't want to sugarcoat it too much. This was an opportunity for us to get money to help develop funding because we didn't want to drain ceramic speed, right? So it, it it's um it, it goes both ways here um, for this to to work out, and we hope we're going to make the investors a good return on their investment. But when we were starting this, we we believe in the product. Um, will will investors, the people that we're asking to give money to this company, will they believe in the product also? We had no idea. Essentially, put your money where your mouth is. Okay, you know we we have this cool cool thing, and um, yeah, day one it just shot through the roof. And um, it, technically, I think it was the thirty six or thirty eight hours later. Yeah, we hit that goal, and um, and we. We learned we learned a lot. Um, we we left some money on the table. Um, it was good. So those investors that got in, um, very very favorable terms. <laughs> they jumped on it, which is great. And we hope we can uh, we can um, you know make them square and, and get them some money. But we also realized that driven is more valuable on the market than um, we put the dollar amount on it. Um, but that's okay. Moving forward, we'll do another round of funding, most likely in nine to twelve months. This this round of funding is mostly to get us through the manufacture. Excuse me, to get us through the product development. Next round of funding will get us into manufacturing, and at that point, we hope that we're you know a sustainable company and can uh, bring in revenue and some profits. So um, yeah, we 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 learned a lot. Now uh, allow me to go down this tangent of equity crowdfunding. Atherton Bikes. Um, had a successful campaign maybe two months ago. I know Veer Belts is doing equity crowdfunding right now. Do you know what? Um, I mean, if you do, yeah. if you if you're doing my job and you're interested in bicycle tech, you yeah. know, in terms of your Google alerts, you know, you need to have cycling crowdfund. You know, that, mm-hmm. you know, and any kind of variation of those because that's where I'm finding the most interesting stuff is happening. Yeah, and and Tom and, and just uh, not not driven, but just the market in general right now. It is. We see we see the big companies out there that that rule the roost and and it, that's that's great but it is very difficult for smaller companies to get started in the United States anyway equity crowdfunding was just made legal in 2017 so it's relatively new and this we've had such a good experience with this this is a 
a true way to get innovation into the market. There are a lot of great ideas. You don't have to work for the, the big duopoly you know, to, to get ideas out there. There's a, a lot of, of cyclists and triathletes that, that are riding and have these ideas, but might not have money or a place to start. So with equity crowdfunding opportunities, um, boy, it, 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 there's really an opportunity for a lot of good ideas to get just a couple hundred thousand dollars under their belt to, to start the process. And um, I just I just think it's absolutely great for the industry itself with this equity crowdfunding that it's just starting here in the U.S. And I think in 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 Europe and the U.K. I think it's been around for a little while legally, um, but here in the U.S. So, so point is, I think I believe that your listeners are going to be seeing a lot more of the equity crowdfunding opportunities out there and technology and innovations. You know, well, my, my final question really is around sort of the the reasons not to do this, right? Because I always look for, you know, I always talk myself out of it. You know, I come up with a good idea, talk myself out of doing it. So, you know, for you, there are these huge barriers, aren't there, to uh, mm-hmm. to entry, really? Obviously, there are UCI regulations, which I don't know what they would say about a, a shaft-driven drivetrain. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are things like, you know, the idea about servicing and the expertise of, the, of, of bike shops, you know, when a new product's comes on so i mean mm-hmm. well done for overcoming these barriers and just going with it i mean on that one about the uci are there any limits to what you can yep. do yeah. with your products yeah yeah so those are those are you just mentioned two barriers and i'll touch on them real quick so yeah um you know the politician usually dances around certain questions and i'm going to come flat out and answer your question no <laughs> well you know no <laughs> no as it stands right now driven is not legal on the uci um it will be We've done a lot of research. The rule books say chain drivetrain. That doesn't mean it's the end of the world. Not at all. So we work with a company called WFSGI, World Federation of Sporting Good Industries, Shimano, SRAM, a lot of the big bike manufacturers are part of this. And it's it's essentially the lobbying group um, that that teams up when you know there's an issue or wants to get something passed with the UCI. And for instance, disc brakes went went through this process. Um, a while ago, no, I don't know, what eight years ago or so. Um, so, so that was interesting to to see how that happened. Um, so we're we're in the process of putting together a proposal to the UCI um, to get driven in for test. It's called a test and competition, and that would be for the 2022 season. Um, it wouldn't be Peloton. It might be a couple of time trial bikes. Um, and the approach that we're taking is is Yes, Driven has a lot of advantages um, that UCI doesn't like to put technology in that'll give a you know, straight up black and white advantage to certain cyclists that only have this technology. So what we do have, though, is Driven is such a neat technology because it can trickle down to everyday cyclists over time. Now, I mean, ultimately, Driven, we want to see it on, on commuter bikes and, and $500 bikes at some point because it's enclosed and longevity and efficient. So we're taking, going to take that approach um, with the UCI that yes, driven has some advantages right now, but this is really technology that cycling industry in general, not just race bikes, but trickle down to commuter bikes and everyday bikes really could benefit from. And, um, and we'll see how that goes. And, and, 
you know, we're, we're hoping the UCI, at least for step one, you know, allows this technology for, for testing. And, um, and I'll just stop there because I don't know the rest of how it's going to go. And we're, we're hoping, we're hoping, um, that, that it will be accepted. Um, then on, um, Oh, sorry. <laughs> what was the other barrier? <laughs> oh, it's it's, all right. you know, it's, it's funny because you, you 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 once you start talking about the UCI, my I, I start yeah. I mean, oh, at the moment I'm a bit no. obsessed with um with the UCI. I, 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 it's one aside. I mean, I've, I have been talking to quite a few people who compete in Ironman recently mm-hmm. because I'm really interested because. Th- you know the Ironman bikes—they're like spaceships because they are free mm-hmm. of those regulations. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I wondered whether you know you'd, you'd considered Ironman as a sort of testing ground, or whether yep. you're already you're already over there. Yep. So if you noticed, like um, the 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 main bike—it's called the Hero bike—that was on a Cervelo P5. So you know that's that's a, a not, you know a triathlon-based Ironman bike. So uh, you know I shouldn't use the term Ironman because that's trademark, but you know the the long-distance triathlon. So yes. Uh, triathlon is going to be where we hit first, no doubt. Um, there's no rules. Uh, the I shouldn't say no rules. Driven, driven would be allowed in the triathlon community. Um, we find that because there's fewer rules, a lot of triathletes accept new technology because it can come in. And there's some market studies that the the net worth of triathletes is the highest, you know. Bracket. So that helps because they can afford new technology. So, you know, kind of putting all this together is that triathlon and the triathlon bikes will be where we hit first. It's mostly because they're allowed. This The process with the UCI is going to be time consuming, no doubt. And we don't want to you know, be hindered by that process when we can go over here, to the Ironman races and get bikes in there and get a few podium wins and really prove driven so yep that's uh you nailed it that's that's our path that we're gonna take yeah hey listen i mean you know talking about you know it can seem far-fetched you know the idea of seeing someone on driven winning a race but t- 10 years ago i think it was the first time that electronic gears won the tour de france you know they were brand mm-hmm. new 10 years ago and now mm-hmm. you know pretty ubiquitous so you know in 10 in a decade's mm-hmm. time everything changes right oh yeah yeah and 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 if if that keeps increasing, you know, um, exponentially, where another technology might only take five years rather than ten years, we could see something pretty quickly. You know, it, with the technology, something that let your listeners think about is look at the rear hub right now. That's I mentioned. It's designed around a chain drivetrain. That free hub body has to be back there. Yeah, the the cassette has to be disconnected. You have to have a rear derailleur. We're able to put the free hub the uh, um, mechanism in the drive shaft itself, in the pinion. So let's think about that for a second. If you don't have to deal with uh, the free hub and that, and I'm not, I don't want to disclose too much, but that rear wheel, the rear hub assembly, can you just start with a, a blank sheet of paper. You don't have to have all these moving parts in there. Um, it can all be in the drive shaft. Think of what can be done with that real estate back there between the two chain stays that you can't do right now with a traditional chain drivetrain. So, so there's a lot of cool things that we're planning on doing, not just in the shaft, like all the, all the driven bikes, we just used a standard rear hub, right? It was on a free hub body. And that's because what we had and the time constraints and that was the level of the prototype development. But 
Again, the constraints being put in place on a bicycle by the chain drivetrain are in our eyes ridiculous and something new. When you pull those constraints, it really opens up that rear end of the bicycle. And I'll leave it at that. <laughs> it's just, it's exciting stuff for us to have those constraints removed. It's kind of like, uh-oh, now what do we do? We oh boy, we've got to get creative here. <laughs> My thanks to Jason for speaking to me about Driven. I'm definitely going to chat with Jason again. He is a fascinating guy and really good to chat to. And as always, thanks to Lizzie for being so open and honest. And I think from all of us here at the Cycling Podcast, from Service Course, and you guys out there, we wish her all the best in her continued recovery. And she will be back next month, as you'd expect. Until then, I'll see you later. <laughs>